This is the Slowing Down Podcast, and I'm your host, Jana Slow Akimova. Today I'm speaking with my new friend, Joe Germinario, about body and mind-related practices. Joe is a writer, yoga teacher, martial dancer, traveler, and just a cool person to hang out with. In our flowing conversation, it just happened that I naturally shared some personal stories too. I hope you don't mind it and still find this episode interesting. Please welcome Joe Germinario. Hi, Joe. Hey, Jenna. Thanks so much for coming to the studio today to record this podcast with me and Remy. Thank you for having me. And I actually wanted to ask how you guys exactly met and like, how do you know each other? It's so cool how I found out that you know Remy. That was yeah. random. Uh, just two random people talking about writing in a cafe. And I recognize a name on a folder that you're showing me and it's my buddy. So how did I meet Remy? We met in Kung Fu class. I guess it must be like six or seven years ago. And we were both taking this uh, Shaolin Kung Fu together. And it's it's very cool because uh, it was just such a great group of people and we just got along. And I guess there's a bonding that happens when you're throwing fists at each other in a friendly way. Uh, <laughs> and that just happened, yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, I think I will ask you to introduce yourself to the listeners. And if you could talk a little bit about your background and your journey and where and how you arrived to today's day. So my name is Joe Germanario from Montreal. And about 10 years ago, I guess like more like 13 years ago, 2009, I started traveling. Uh, I started by going to South Korea to teach English as a second language. And I just loved being in a different culture. And from then on, for the next 13 years, I traveled, came back to Montreal, made money, traveled, used all my money, went to uh, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, started studying yoga, tai chi, kung fu, actually learned tai chi from a guy in Ecuador. He was an Ecuadorian who had lived in China for four years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so lived in Ecuador and then ended up in Norway for four and a half years, or four years, excuse me. And then gradually got tired, <laughs> ran out of money, got kicked out of Norway because of COVID-19, and now I'm back here. And teaching yoga, teaching English as a second language, and writing. And I guess I could like, the theme of all that 13 years was I loved writing. I love writing. I love stories. And I avoided writing by doing really cool stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, you know what? I need more stories. I'm going to go to Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. And then just didn't write. <laughs> or write, wrote stuff, but didn't finish anything. And so, yeah, I, I guess that's how I ended up here. I'm curious about your relationships with uh, collecting stories and then putting them through your mind and body into the piece of paper. Yeah. So how does it work? I did liberal arts, and I know that you did liberal arts too yep. in university. I did a double major in English literature and liberal arts. Very confusing uh, major. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what I got from it? I didn't know at the time that this is what I would get from it. But I got a very um, symbolic way of looking at the world. I see a lot of symbolism in the things I do. And so that's kind of how I collect my stories. Just in my everyday life, I'm trying to learn something through traveling, through living. And, and I guess like with a bit of a mindfulness kind of approach to life, like the more I can be present with what's going on, I believe the more it will be able to come out later when I write. The writing, I don't know what it is. Uh, put me in front of a blank page and I have to make a plan and nothing will happen. So what I started doing was just stream of consciousness as much as possible. So my process became like, okay, I'd go and I would write while I traveled, but I would always go to a cafe wherever I was in the world, sit down and then just write, maybe about my day or whatever, but try to write really fast and get out of my own way. And then over the years, what happened is I started realizing that what would happen is after maybe three rounds of like 10 minutes of stream of consciousness, I would actually start writing something that was kind of good. Mm. I would get like all the debris, kind of like when you're shaking something out of the way or like sifting maybe. And, and then I would take those stream of consciousnesses 
and and kind of turn them into an article later. I have this image that I like to uh, think of, like in in Chinese calligraphy, the ink it starts off as a stick, like a hard stick, and before you start doing calligraphy, you have to start rubbing the stick in a circular motion and mixing it with water to make your ink. And that is a meditative process to center you as you make your ink that you will then write with. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the traveling I've done was me making my ink, Mm. if that makes sense. Oh, I love that actually, metaphor for traveling and stories being the ink itself, Mm -hmm. the material that then you put through stream of consciousness and crystallize into something else. Yeah. If I go back to 2009, you mentioned that uh, you went to South Korea to teach English and later on you got into yoga first or uh, what was your first, like, let's say, body-related practice? So I was in South Korea and I was good friends with this woman who I had met and she was from Vancouver, originally from Poland, but uh, had moved to Vancouver and then had come to South Korea and we were teaching together. And there's this beautiful thing in South Korea how like you can get on, or at least back in 2009, you could get on almost any roof. Oh, wow. Like no one would stop you. And like every roof with every apartment building, there was at least a window that you could crawl through and then hang out on the roof and people oh, would... that's amazing. It was awesome, right? <laughs> so I, I loved it. I love being on a roof. And we were having this intense conversation one night. We were talking about like how stuff was just in our way. You know, how life was kind of like things were preventing us from doing what we wanted in life. And I don't know what it was, but I I had to get up. I was just so frustrated. I got up and there's no banister or anything on the roof, right? And I I get up and I walk and I just want to feel intense, something intense. So I stand on the ledge and I'm not like looking to jump. It's not a windy or rainy day. Um, I just stand on this ledge. How many stories? Oh, it's like three stories. You know, I'd hurt myself bad. (laughs) If I felt exactly wrong enough, I'd I'd die, you know, but it's not not 10 stories, just like three. And I'm looking down and I'm scared. And for some reason at this particular moment, it strikes me as very wrong that I would be scared because there's nothing going to push. I mean, it makes sense, right? You're high up, but logically there's nothing going to push me. My friend is not even close enough for me to think that she would push me and she would never. There's no wind. The only thing standing between me and falling is me. And you spend your whole life trying to survive and you're still afraid that you would jump. And I'm like, that's messed up. And from that thought, I think it was like a week later, this same woman, she introduced me. She told me she was going to a Zen monastery to start meditating and learn how to meditate. And I was like, yeah, okay, let's, let's do that. So I, I went with her and the first night of meditation, it was 50 minutes with a five minute break and then 50 minutes of meditation. And I was intense and I was in pain for like an hour and 40 minutes. In pain from? Just sitting. Sit- okay. You're just sitting meditation. It was awful. I was making more noise than I could hear. I was the guy making the, you know, I was that guy like constant. People were looking at like, come on, man, we're trying to meditate. And I have no idea, but I wanted to do it again. And, and it was just so hard to sit. Uh, I started doing sunrise salutations. Mm-hmm. Started doing some yoga. In order to sit and meditate? In order to sit in the morning, just to help me sit. Um, this same friend of mine, she taught me uh, sunrise salutations. So I would do five sunrise salutations and then sit for like 30 minutes. Nice. That's yeah. amazing. So that was like the first uh, introduction into yeah. yoga. Yeah, that was it. How did it evolve into you actually pursuing the yoga teacher training? From Korea, I traveled, and I ended up traveling through China after I finished my contract. But for the whole year, I kind of tried to develop a meditation practice, and I have no idea why. Honestly, like the first experience was terrible, <laughs> <laughs> but I just felt like it was it was something that resonated with me. Mm-hmm. And then as I traveled, I tried to keep it going. I had nothing on my plate. I was traveling alone most of the time. I wasn't even in tourist cities. I had time and no distractions to keep trying to meditate as I move from one place to the other. And then when I came back to Montreal, I had that reverse kind of culture shock thing. And uh, I just was just so adamant that I wanted to keep meditating. And so I had a very intense approach to it. And from there to becoming a yoga teacher, it's a, 
it has to do with a slowing down kind of moment. Uh-huh. Yeah. I found a book randomly. It's called Embrace Tiger, Return to Mountain by uh, Al Huang, who's a Tai Chi teacher. I just heard about him. I heard something he had said, and then I looked up on Amazon this book, and it didn't, they didn't have it for Kindle, but you could like get the little preview. I read the preview, and it was just so beautiful. It was like two things in particular he said. The first two words of the book were, it happens. And he just explains, because it's the beginning of a class of Tai Chi, and he's like, it happens. We all sit in a circle, and some of you are anxious, some of you want to move. But whatever happens, it will happen. Whatever we do, movement will happen. We're not going to sit here for the rest of our lives. So whether we choose to now or in two minutes, it's going to happen. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty interesting. And I was so enamored with this and another uh, couple of ideas that I read that I, w- I, I went immediately to the buy now, one click, and something stopped me. I don't know what it was, but I was like, no. I had bought like five books in the last month and I hadn't started reading any of them, (laughs) you know? And it was just so easy. And for some reason, I said, no, I'm going to find this book. So at this same time, I was um, planning on going to Costa Rica to write. I was going to go to Central America and just write. But I couldn't find a volunteer job. I couldn't find anything about writing. And I took some like thing that I didn't really want to do. I was teaching English to kids in a very impoverished area in Costa Rica. So it, it was a very nice thing to do. It was a very beautiful thing to do. And I loved the story and what people would think if I told them that. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't what I wanted to do. Right. I wanted to go right. This is happening at the same time. And I start searching for this Tai Chi book. I, I decide I have to find it in a used bookstore. So I check every used bookstore I know in Montreal, and I can't find it. And I start checking the bookstores, the the new bookstores, like Indigo or whatever, and I can't find it. It's like chasing the tiger. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? I'm chasing this tiger. And I just can't find it anywhere. Mm -hmm. But in my journey, I come across a different book, which is called Illusions by Richard Bach. And it's about a a messiah, a made-up messiah in the United States. I open it to a random page and there's this story about the Messiah and he's telling people how to be happy. Mm -hmm. And I was very not happy at this time too, so it it resonated with me. And one of the people says, you know, how do do we become happy? The Messiah says, do what makes you happy. And we're like, okay, do what makes you happy. And another person from the crowd yells, It's easy for you to say you're the Messiah. And so the man tells them a story. The Messiah tells them a story. And he tells them a story about these people that live at the bottom of a river. And their whole lives, they cling to rocks and sticks. And only the very old ever let go. And there's this one man who is very curious. And so one day he lets go. And the river's current takes him, and he's not used to the movement, so it flings him into a rock, and whap, he hits this rock, and he goes tumbling out, and he hits another rock. And then suddenly he gets used to the flow and starts floating away. And one of the people who's still clinging to a rock sees him, and they're like, oh my God, he's flying! And he says, no, I just learned to let go. There's a long story, it's a long convoluted story, but that book just grabbed my heart and like, you need to buy this. And then I was in a cafe reading that book and a woman who was next to me was staring at me. And I'm getting awkward because she's staring at me. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, finally, I'm like, okay, what's up? You know, what's going on? Hello. And she's like, hey, uh, who wrote that book? I said, oh, Richard Bach. This guy named Richard Bach. And she's like, oh, wow, I haven't seen Richard in years. So she knew the author here. Personally. Personally, right? Is that the same author who wrote a famous book about um, jo- Jonathan Siegel? Yeah, Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Yeah. Oh, Have God. you read that book? Uh, yeah, it's in Russian. Chaika, Jonathan Livingston, we call it. <laughs> oh, cool. A, it's uh, one of the books I read as a, a little girl. And oh, that's really? the story about just like, you know, seagulls flying and there's like a, 
uh, Siegel who goes against the crowd and uh, so don't worry if you are different, you know. <laughs> and then many years later, I reread this as an adult and I was so shocked <laughs> because it was a completely different book for me. Anyway, so she knew him personally? Yeah, she knew him personally. No way. And so, <laughs> was it even I don't know. So then she sat at my table and we started talking and she asked me what I was planning on doing, right? And I'm like, oh, you know, and I say it with pride because I know people love the story. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go teach underprivileged children English. And she's like, that sounds really nice. And she asked me what nobody had asked me. She said, is that what you want to do? Uh. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, it isn't. And it's crazy. I went home that night and I looked up what I wanted to do, a writing job. And there was one that was posted that day in Costa Rica to be a writer at a yoga resort. So... I apply. I have no faith that I'm going to get it. I get it. And I go to this yoga resort and I'm doing Kung Fu. I'm like super deep into Kung Fu right now. I'm not really interested in yoga. I'm still meditating a little bit, whatever. I end up at this resort and just through me being there and writing, I start to get teachings of yoga and then they are doing a teacher training. And so they say, you know what, if, you know, we would love for you to write about the teacher training. And I say, well, you know, then I should do the teacher training. And then from that moment, they let me do the teacher training and then they gave me the certificate and I started teaching from there on. That's amazing. Oh my God, you got the blessing from a friend of Richard Bach to become <laughs> a teacher, a yoga teacher. That's so cool that you've read uh, Jonathan Livingston Siegel and in Russian too. That's yeah. uh, I think I read another one, the name which I forgot. It's about the um, pilots. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there is a pilot who is um, also making all the tricks and there is such a technical language describing all those things because I think Richard um, was a pilot himself, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, uh, that's amazing. Yeah, wow. and he's all about going with the flow, I guess, and like, mm -hmm. yeah, he was really seeing, yeah. Yeah, so did you find the Tiger book later on? Oh, yeah, so what happened with the Tiger <laughs> book? I never found it. I bought it on oh, no. Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I ended up clicking it. I tried so hard and then I yeah. and I bought it. So it arrived to you? Yeah. Uh, before I went to Costa Rica, it arrived and I brought it with me. And it's one of my favorite books of all time. Uh -huh. Aha. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. So it was not for nothing. You were chasing it for a reason. <laughs> no, I was definitely chasing it for a reason. You mentioned something what caught my mind. You uh, said the words reverse culture mm -hmm. shock. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because I personally haven't heard about that, but I think I might maybe experience that. But what does it mean and how it was for you? So when I came back from Asia, I was in East Asia for like 16 months, I guess. And and when I left South Korea, I actually sent my iPod back. That, that you know, I didn't want to carry it. And I thought I would be a target traveling through China with headphones in. You know, you can't hear anything. And it means you have something worth uh, worth money, right? So I went like three months with no headphones and no music. So when I came back, that was one of the first really weird things. I had an iPod again and I couldn't listen to music for more than five to 10 minutes at first because it was too much stimulation constantly. And so that was an interesting shock. But the weirdest thing was that everything was familiar. I had been going for 16 months where every day I saw something new. The people all looked new. I never saw anybody I knew really. And then I was in this town, Montreal, and in this neighborhood where I had grown up. Everything was like familiar. And that was just as strange as seeing Korea for the first time. You know, wow, oh man, I actually know that thing. Um, and then I, I had this moment where I had to catch a bus in Montreal. And in South Korea, you have to walk out into the street to catch a bus. So I walked out into the street to catch a Montreal bus and the bus like veers right towards me, you know, so little things like this. Mm -hmm. I think the most overwhelming thing was that you knew people, you understood everybody who was talking around mm, you language. perfectly. Mm -hmm. Have you ever felt anything like that? Yes, absolutely. After I went to India for the first time, I spent there three months only, but it was constantly traveling by trains. And um, so I did a huge loop around India. And when I came back to Moscow, it was so shocking that I spent, I think, a few months just locked in the room and trying to figure out the Rubik's Cube. Oh, wow. I remember being weirdly 
afraid that everyone knows what I say <laughs> <laughs> and that everyone speaks and I understand. And it was too much of information, as you said, like uh, too much stimulation for the brain. But also um, I couldn't figure out how I can go to a store and buy like fresh juice for the money I could have lived for like a week in India. It's also interesting, like the culture of a traveler, right? When you're traveling, there's a sense of pride almost on how well you can live for how little, right? Oh, yes. Like you also don't have a big budget. You're trying to make this thing go as long as you want. And then you come back to, you know, Russia or Montreal and and yeah, there's some people who might have that same ideal, but mostly it's like, it's a very different uh, value system on how you spend money and what you can afford and what's successful or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And then you quickly kind of adapt to being comfortable. Mm-hmm. So, and the comfort uh, costs cost a lot. Yeah. That's very fascinating. That's interesting. Yeah, comfort does cost us a lot, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and when you're a backpacker, you don't really even value comfort. Not in the same way. No, not in the same way. No. That's good if your sleeping bag is not wet. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, comfort is having a good towel that dries super quick and like it's, it doesn't smell bad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Wow. I wanted to ask you another thing because as you were speaking, I noticed one pattern when you started meditating, even though it was not pleasant the first experience, but for some reason you just kept going. And the same... Um, where is he applied for finding this book? For some reason, you just felt that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look back, can you see the reason? Or it's it, it's a good question. I was actually listening to this talk by a spiritual teacher I really like named Ramdas, and he was talking yesterday, and he was talking about how the the present is is not defined by the past, but that the past is defined by the present. In the sense that I don't know why I did those things in the past until the present or the future present shows me why I did those things, right? You might think you know, but it will change in 10 years. And then you think you know, and then it changes in 10 years. So I have some ideas. But from I, now, like yeah, right yeah. Now, looking backwards. Yeah, from now, <laughs> looking backwards, right? Yeah. And there, there was probably some kind of solace that I found in sitting. Even though it was difficult, some part of me, uh, just it just resonated with me. I'd actually asked a Tai Chi teacher I had years ago about this, and he said, sometimes what you do just resonates so deeply with your heart that you're drawn back to it over and over again. And I think that was the best, even though it's a kind of vague answer, I think that was the best answer I could give. Wow, that's so cool. Thank you. All right, so maybe we could jump a little bit into the slowing down experiences. Um, have you had, like recently, maybe a big slowing down experience in your life? or And what was that? Before we jump there, maybe even when I say slowing down, what does it mean for you? Wow. Um, I link the idea of slowing down, it's maybe the opposite of, but rushing when I look through my notes and things I've written about, I've written about rushing a lot and how I don't want to rush. And I call it the rushing sickness, right? That we're all kind of part of. And uh, so I'll, I'll share like an example, one moment that just sticks out in my mind from years ago. I was late for like a 7 a.m. class. I was teaching English or something like that downtown. And I was rushing because I was late. You know, and you have to rush sometimes, right? So I'm really, really rushing. I'm in the metro. I have to switch from one line to the other. And in this state of mind, everybody who is in front of me is an obstacle. They are no longer people. They are just things. They are pylons, things that are in my way. And there's this elderly man who's in my way. Oh, God, he's so slow. I'm thinking to myself, God, get out of my way. I'm going to miss the metro. Jeez, what's your problem? And as I pass him, I look back at him, probably, you know, when you drive by somebody who's going slow to give him like some eyes, you know, like, you're, do you know what you cost me? <laughs> and I look back at him and he's rushing just as much as me. Just Whoa. his rush is slow because <laughs> he's like an elderly man, right? He's like 70, 80 years old. And I realized at that moment, I'm like, wow, none of us are safe <laughs> from this, this <laughs> rushing sickness, you know? So that was that was that was when I started thinking about rushing a lot. And then le- yesterday as a recent slowing down experience, um 
I teach my mom Tai Chi once a week. And she lives very close to me. So she doesn't leave the house very often because she's a little scared of falling. So I go to her house and I meet her and then we walk together to my house. So she has a reason to leave the house and we do Tai Chi. And she walks extremely slowly and we have to take breaks as we go. And it's like two blocks. And yesterday we were doing this and I can see that she's really trying hard. You know, she's in pain. She's, she's walking really slowly and she can't see the world around her because, you know, it's hard for her. But I'm not in pain and her slow walking and me having patience for her allowed me to walk really slowly down these two blocks. I never walk down slowly and I could see so much. You know, I notice this tree. I can feel my feet. I can be with my mom and have patience for her as long as I wasn't trying to get where we were going as quickly as possible. So for me, that's really like slowing, slowing down. That's beautiful. Wow. Just for changing the speed of moving between the blocks in your own neighborhood, you can see more and experience this neighborhood differently. Yeah, exactly. Many years ago, back in Moscow, when I had an office job, I would need to walk from the subway station to home where I lived for like 20 minutes. I felt that I am in a pattern of everydayness and I don't see anything new. And I'm tired of what I see on a daily basis. And I don't know what came to my mind, but one time I said, I'm going to walk home as slow as I can. And I decided to give myself an assignment to put my heel where my toe begins. Oh, wow. One by one, step by step, super tiny steps. I was walking so slowly that like a group of guys that I thought that they're going to, I don't know, assault me or something. And they're like, hey, are you crazy? I'm like, no, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just walking. Like, Why are you walking so slowly? And I was like 20 years old or something. And I'm like, I don't know, I just want... <laughs> Like, you're crazy. I kept walking. And then, no, 10 minutes later, they ran towards me and they gave me flowers. Awesome. <laughs> so they just brought me flowers. I'm like, all right. <laughs> so I kept walking. <laughs> and they couldn't handle this. Like, they couldn't handle the speed. Everything was like in a time lapse around me. And it took me maybe, I don't know, maybe three hours or something like that. It's extremely patient practice it was for me. First of all, it's such a cool project to give yourself. Right, like just like a little challenge um, and then to stick with it, the whole thing and, and with people watching you and people obviously noticing you to the extent where they're, they're going to come up to you and ask you what the heck you're doing. And I just wanted to say like the discipline it takes to move slowly is often uh, not noticed, right? Because we think, oh, discipline means move harder, do more, go quicker, because that is hard, you know, to go faster than where you're already going. But try to stop, you know, and see what's going on or to move slowly or to walk one foot length at a time all the way home. That's, that's pretty difficult because you got the whole world resisting that. Yeah, exactly. Or even the simple exercise, you just walk freely as you walk and then make one step backward. Oof. And keep walking, right? So on, yeah. At some point, like, make step backward. And then you try to find where to fit this one step backward. <laughs> and it's especially difficult if you're going to the destination you have to be, <laughs> not just walking randomly. Yeah. No. Wow, that's a really cool idea. Because, like, I mean, in life, often I can get very trapped by the thinking of linear thinking or the, of progress in the sense that I don't think I'm getting anywhere because I've taken a metaphorical step back. But, or I didn't get to take like that extra step forward and I have to take two steps back in my life. So just doing a practice like that is kind of like, because, sorry, life, you're going to take a couple steps back. It's going to happen. You're going to stutter step now and then in some aspect of your life. So just to, it would be really interesting to do that and just really feel what it feels like to take that step back. Mm. Like, what is going on internally when you take that step back? I think that'd be really interesting. Wow. 
Yeah, for sure. I want to ask you, what kind of body-mind or let's say body-related practices do you practice? You mentioned Tai Chi, Kung Fu, Yoga. Yeah. What else? What uh, on, the, on your map? <laughs> okay, on my map. So those are my three main disciplines and mm-hmm. I've, I, I always kind of think of them as three very different, like Tai Chi is the soft extreme, Shaolin Kung Fu is the hard extreme, and uh, yoga is this reaching, right? Um, this expansive. Uh, other than that, I'm doing uh, contact improvisation, which is a uh, form of dance where you keep contact and you, you try to get to a point where you and your partner, neither is leading and neither is following, but both are leading and both are following. And um, this point of contact, and it's very cool because you can get into an awareness state where you're just kind of witnessing a dance occurring. Um, free dance is very important for me too, just like playing some weird music and just dancing. I think that's uh, really important. Have you tried the five rhythms? I haven't. I'm super interested <sighs> by it though. Yeah, um, I haven't tried it yet. It really depends what kind of music they will okay. put because that's five rhythms, but... They can be pretty random music. <laughs> and one time I, I got lucky, the music was going along with my feelings, but another time it was so random. I was just like, oh my God, this music is too much, you know? So yeah, but it's great. Oh, but you've done this five rhythms. Yeah, like oh, a couple cool. of times. For me, dance is really important. Mm-hmm. And um, I do staff, like contact staff. Mm-hmm. What is this? Staff? So um, you have like a long stick. Mm-hmm. And usually you might put weight on the end. I do it very makeshift. So I put like some pennies or um, like a coin at the end and tape it just so it has some weight on either end. And then you're spinning it and you try to, you can spin it over your shoulders and you do tricks. Mm. And for me, it's meditation. And it's a meditation that um, if you <laughs> start thinking about dinner or something like that, the stick will hit you. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you, you, very, you realize very, you're going to be punished right away. <laughs> yeah, you put, it's it, very quickly. You will realize that your mind has wandered. Um, so that's really great. And, uh, and this art form that I've kind of stolen ideas from a lot of different places called nonviolent fighting, mm. which is kind of a form of, uh, interpersonal communication through movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, so it's like integrating your practices into something like uh, basically your own language of movement. And- yeah, I think, yeah, I think so. That's like what I would like to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I just I want to process it for a second. So <laughs> <laughs> a lot of um, um, interests too. Do you feel that uh, there comes the need for a certain discipline? Or you first encounter the discipline that speaks to your heart and somehow it just stays with you? Um, It's actually like an ongoing kind of internal battle at times because yoga is what I teach most of the time right now because it's it's the most accessible for most people. But I I tend to weave other things into it. But I just keep being drawn back to Kung Fu. And Kung Fu is very intense. It's very different. Like yoga for me is a way of giving my body a chance to talk to me and me to really hear what it wants in what direction would I like to improve and to really listen to the sensations so that I don't force. And it's very healing. If I can really do that deeply, very rarely in our lives do we actually get to just not force ourselves in a direction we don't want to go. And to actually feel that, things kind of get released. So it's very healing for me, but Kung Fu is like this part of me that wants to strive and wants to just keep working harder and and the part that knows that it will improve if it's um, consistent and always giving its best effort. It, uh, I get that from Kung Fu. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like counterbalancing. Yeah, through extremes, yeah, I guess. So. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how did you call Tai Chi as this extreme soft? No. Yeah, it's... like sort of the soft side of the ah, circle. Right. Um, in Kung Fu, you systematically harden every part of your body that can be hardened so that you don't feel impact. And Tai Chi, at least my approach and what I've kind of understood through it, is a systematic softening of the body so that when something hits it, it just softens so much around it that there's no impact felt. Mm. It's absorbing, it's flowing, it's, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. 
You've done some Tai Chi as well, right? Yeah, for a year. I got obsessed, almost like got in a cult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. Um, although I would say that I was lucky to find really, really great teachers. That was the discipline which I still consider being pure <laughs> for me mm. from mm, abusive school of thought. And I did Tai Chi in New York City. Even though it was the Chinese family in New York City, it still was adapted for the American customer, right? Sure. Yeah. I'm actually curious about this um, relationships between the, let's say, physical discipline and then the philosophy behind that, because I had this uh, kind of very confusing experience in India with uh, yoga school mm -hmm. there. I felt strongly that the teachers there try to bend our minds and convert us into the philosophy they were offering through physical activity too. Like, for example, through the punishment and, you know, all sorts of things. Really? Wow. Yeah. So that was a bizarre experience. So maybe I'll uh, keep it for now away from the podcast. <laughs> um, but I saw that the philosophy behind was so strong, like the roots that was coming from, they were like claiming almost that this yoga, this specific yoga mm -hmm. belongs to this school of thought, this belief system. If you practice this yoga, you have to chant this mantras, right? You have yeah. to wear certain clothes. You have to, have to, have to, have to, right? Uh, that was very suffocating for me because I wanted to integrate this new knowledge into my background knowledge, maybe mix it together with my experience in like temple dances or something like that. What was I doing there back like when I was 18, 19? Basically, I was pro-integration, but then you go to the school and that's so rigid that uh, they almost tell you you're not allowed to practice anything else if you <laughs> want to be a teacher of this specific school. Or, for example, Vipassana by Goyanka. Um, yeah, same thing. I was thinking Vipassana yeah, as well. They yeah. tell you, oh, no, you, you, you drop practicing anything else, only Goyanka. And they call it Vipassana, but... I'm coming from the background of Theravada Buddhism and there is Anapanasati. And in Anapanasati, they have 16 steps and the last four steps are called Vipassana. So for me, when I came to Goyanka's practice of Vipassana, again, it was confusing. I couldn't <laughs> quite understand that. I'm like, where are the other 12 steps? <laughs> so That's my question for um, your disciplines and your relationships with the philosophies behind the disciplines you choose to study um yeah it's a, it's, it's an interesting issue right because you do get a lot of these teachers who say you got to choose one way you have to choose this way and and if you want to do our way you got to do it our way and uh and it can't i can totally understand the suffocating aspect of it um there are some things in yoga that should be done a certain way, right? Like some breathing exercises that are more advanced breathing exercises. If you don't do it with a teacher and you do it incorrectly, you could get sick, right? Or in Tai Chi, there's a thing called chi sickness. Usually happens when you're trying to force something to happen energetically and you don't really understand the repercussions. But I don't, I don't know. I, I, I totally I have not stuck <laughs> with one way. Um, and I've kind of integrated them naturally within myself. I'm just very, I try to just be very aware of what's going on. And if, if I try to mix two things, if they really don't feel good inside my body. One thing that I think is important as a teacher is if you're going to break away from a tradition and do something differently than they say, try it out on yourself for a good amount of time before you teach somebody else that thing. And I think that's important because we don't really know. There's some yoga stuff that's way above my pay grade. Um, one thing I've always wanted to do is blend Tai Chi and yoga into the same class. And I think it's okay, but I've also hesitated because I've had teachers tell me the energetics are different. You could mess somebody up. And I've had teachers say there's no problem. Mm. I think there's a way, and I would love to do it, because Tai Chi, the flowing movements that just seamlessly blend into the next movement, like almost like 
infinite movements that could repeat, very meditative, are really nice is transitions in yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, and yoga can sometimes be a little too dry for me if I'm always just stretching and like doing that. I don't know how to answer the question. I'm very interested in blending these things, but there's a part of me that heard what you heard, you know, like a stick to one thing that is, I think there's some truth to it, but it doesn't have to be uh, 100% true. Does that make sense? I don't know. I got lost there. I think it makes sense for people who graduate with a major in liberal arts. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just uh, the type of a brain, I guess. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's okay to mix the stuff too, you know. Me too. I think it's okay. <laughs> I think the best way I've found that mixes it mm-hmm. is like, I wanted to have a morning practice, right? Because I, I, I like waking up and doing movement or meditation. But some mornings I don't have the energy to do yoga. So Tai Chi works really good those mornings. It works really well those mornings. And other mornings I really want something a little more fun or, or dynamic. So maybe Kung Fu works really well those mornings. So what it, those different tools have given me um, different practices I can do depending on what my energy level is. I actually like that you call them tools because it sounds like a toolkit. Like you accumulate this knowledge, you go through those schools, and then you have this palette of different inks <laughs> mm. and then uh, you can just draw your own painting and probably it's going to be very impressionist kind of abstract painting maybe because it's not going to be like super crazy perfected of like 30 years of practicing just one discipline right but it's going to be a painting anyway and that's going to be your painting through your experience through your needs right mm. i was using the word toolkit for different forms of meditation Mm-hmm. Because as Buddha said that like there are more than thousands of forms of meditation, if there are a thousand different meditation techniques, why do you stick to one? Sure. And maybe there are different functions for different forms of meditation. And so I started seeing it as a toolkit that sometimes maybe you need to slow down, but maybe sometimes you need to chase something and you need the different type of breathing. I'm very curious that maybe these different disciplines that you've gathered in your life, they were these tools for certain things which your body and mind needed. Absolutely. Yeah. When you're talking, it made me realize that like, yeah, I I do Kung Fu and I really try to be relaxed in intense situations. If I'm face to face with somebody who and we're gonna it's very controlled but if we're gonna like try to hit each other and it's such a good dynamic you're never really scared but it is an intensity you can feel it immediately can i remain calm in that kind of situation and also you do build a lot of resilience to discomfort and you do that in yoga as well you get to be very good in uncomfortable situations i love what you said about like the different kind of breathing right like can Can you train yourself to use the right breathing at the right time? And you have these tools, right, to practice that. Right. Yeah, so I think that's that's totally what's going on. Yeah. Maybe it's because we live in the cities, and cities require so many skills from us as humans, mm. and it kind of constantly disbalances us. Sometimes I feel angry, and when I feel angry, I I don't want to just let it go completely. I want to leave through this emotion to really feel it. Yeah. And then I would use some sort of crazy dance or like punch a bag or something like that, right? So if I were living in a very simple countryside lifestyle, maybe I wouldn't have this angerness suddenly visiting me. And it just happens because I'm exposed to a lot of information, a lot of global events, you always kind of find source of disturbance yeah. uh, in the modern lives. And that's where this toolkit comes. That resonates with me so, so deeply because I feel the same way. If I was in a forest, that would be enough meditation for me. If I could just be quiet in a forest, I wouldn't need a structured meditation. And I, I heard it called like um, technology, like meditation as a technology. It's a it's a science, right? The science of presence, the science of yoga, the science of um, enlightenment. 
it's supposed to be an empirical process that will bring you to wherever it's going to bring you, whatever that is. And when I think of like meditation for me, it's just such a good tool for city living. Or if I only did Vipassana and then I sit at a desk all day and then tell myself I need to meditate and do Vipassana, well, I'm always sitting and there's, it's not good for my body. You know, I probably need maybe a moving meditation or a walking meditation, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. I'm curious if you have figured out how to manage the stress level. What forms of stress enter your life and how do you manage them? Sometimes I manage them well. I have this belief that anxiety and stress are natural byproducts of living in a city. Agreed. It will just happen. It's going to happen. The ground is hard. You have no connection really with nature. It's very hard. So it's going to happen. When I came back from Norway, which was at the beginning of 2021, I had no job. I hadn't been living in the city for four years. And I got a job as a waiter and bartender at a very popular restaurant. And the restaurant was a great restaurant. And it was always full. And it was the hardest job I've ever worked. And it was so stress heavy. And I had like three seatings. I had to flip my table. I needed them to leave by this time because people were going to come at this time and they were waiting and I needed to sell them wine and I needed to sell high level stress, high, high level stress. And um, it's difficult when you're that exhausted from your stress to have any kind of practice. The only thing I could do during that time was Tai Chi and go to a park and do some Tai Chi because it was the softest, most grounding thing. And I needed it to keep me balanced. But I also had to learn like how to be very stressed. And the problem is you actually need anxiety as a waiter. Because I've tried to, okay, I'm, you know what? Nothing, it doesn't matter if they don't get their food. It's all good. And you are terrible at your job. You know, nobody gets anything. Your boss is down your, your neck. It doesn't work. So you need a little bit of anxiety. But you can get carried away, right? You can you can get addicted to stress and the power of stress, right? Because you get things done. It actually led me back to Kung Fu. Even though Tai Chi was medicine, Kung Fu was teaching me how to be calm with incredible amounts of stress. When people get stressed, you tend to get a lot of anger. Different people stress different ways, but especially in a restaurant, people will get angry at you. And so... When I was able to be more calm in stressful situations, I could really feel what it was like for people to be angry at me. And like where you said you had to live through that anger and live through the experience of anger, me feeling what it was like to be angry at, for people to be angry at, I had to feel it without breaking down. And that was difficult. And the Kung Fu actually allowed me to have enough calm and wherewithal to be yelled at and just watch it happen. And watch what's happening to me. Like, almost like I felt like a five-year-old kid who just got yelled at. Like, that memory was happening. And you're like, oh, God, are tears happening right now? It's like, oh, it's okay. Just watch the tears. Don't let them come out because you got another six hours to work, you know? And like, uh, and just keep going. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So in that way, like... It's helped me see what happens within me. And what was so cool was after a couple of times where I did that, where I just watched it and didn't react and get angry, didn't defend myself, which was my tendency. There was this one moment where my boss got really angry. He's like, do this. And it was completely out. And I just very calmly, without being upset, I said, okay. And I was like, wow, the anger didn't touch me. But I had to go through the process of letting it touch me feeling it touch me, watching it touch me. And then without even trying, the next time it, I could be with it and it didn't touch me. Wow. That was cool. That's the achievement. That's the achievement. And next time it might be different. I might cry. Yeah. You know? For sure. <laughs> you <never> yeah. know. <laughs> You're not a robot. You cannot just program yourself yeah. to be a certain way. Yeah. Wow. Beautiful. Fascinating how you said that with the amount of stress entering your life, you could only do, for example, Tai Chi for a while and then you brought Kung Fu back. I do remember that back when I was traveling in Thailand, I met uh, this wonderful master of meditation and she invited me to her cell, like monastic cell, but she would never allow me to stay with her for more than 10 days. I would be leaving at her cell meditating at her basement, eating whatever people would bring us to eat as donation because you're not allowed to 
choose your food, you're not allowed to buy your food. And technically meditating for, I don't know, 12, 14 hours a day. And after 10 days, she would ask me to leave, travel for two weeks, and don't meditate. Hmm. And I couldn't figure out why. I'm like, why? Like, I'm, I'm meditating here like for 10 days and then you just kick me out and you say, don't, don't meditate. And, um, and it was fascinating because she told me that you have accumulated enough experience right now from just practicing meditation. Mm-hmm. Just observe how you will be interacting with your environment outside of the room of the meditation. That's so cool. What I found interesting in your story that the meditation left your everyday practice but it didn't leave you maybe this years of practice prior to this crazy stressful period of time revealed itself and helped you to do this incredible work of observing the anger going at you that is uh thank you for all that credit i guess (laughs) but it's it's such a cool way of looking at it right because like i still grew up in the west i still grew up in montreal and i still have this um the celebration of being busy or like that need to achieve. And we we bring it to meditation all the time, that need to achieve to, oh, this guy meditated for 10 years straight and didn't miss a day. And we're very, it's very impressive. And I want to do that too. I can't miss a day. And I get it. Mm-hmm. But you don't, like, like you said, maybe for this period of time, it was good. You got what you needed. And then now be aware, use that awareness in your life. That's actually very healing for me, what you just said, because personally... I will get upset at myself if I didn't do Tai Chi enough or I didn't do Kung Fu enough or I wasn't consistent enough with my yoga. But maybe in the moments where I'm doing more Kung Fu, it's feeding my future yoga. And it's all basically to feed me. Actually, when I did Vipassana, it was my Kung Fu practice that allowed me to sit for 10 hours Mm -hmm. because I was very good with discomfort. Mm -hmm. Right. Where did you do Vipassana? I did it in, uh, it was outside of Montreal, where is it Val David? There's a, I think that's the closest uh, Vipassana. Through Dharma.org? Oh. Was it Vipassana by Goyanka? It was no? Goyanka. Goyanka. It was Goyanka. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How was it for you? It was good. I really liked it. Um, you can definitely see how it's a perfect situation to be brainwashed. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for saying right? that. Like it's, Thank you. You yes. have like little food, <laughs> you're doing this meditation, your mind is very open, and then you watch these videos from Guenka, and he's trying to sell you that, you know, this may be a, a little bit unkind or unfair to say he's selling it to you, but... Well, yeah. he's former businessman. So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> a great businessman too. Yeah. I always was very struck by one thing he said where he said he was very adamant against mantra. Mm-hmm. Right, he said, "Oh, it's not like mantra. Mantra is like you're relying on the mantra, where as this is the original Buddha meditation, twenty five hundred years." And I'm like, "Okay, it's a genius meditation. It's a beautiful meditation. It's very good if you want to do movement practices." I realized everybody I was doing it with were massage therapists and stuff because it gets you so in touch with um, sensation. So if you do yoga or kung fu or something, it's a great meditation to get into. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was good for 10 days to say, I will do nothing except this. But in my life, I definitely did not adhere to that rule. I have definitely done other meditations and done other things. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that you have like a whole like uh, relationship. You can see the pattern of my relationships to uh, gurus yeah, you know, totally. in my life. I just wasn't as lucky as, uh, for example, you. Oh, maybe lucky, I know, but... I see that from my travelings and I always wanted to like chase the roots, you know, like go and mm. see the roots and like, oh yeah, I wanna know where yoga is coming from and da da da. Um but I would just yeah, experience some weird brutal things and then would be confused for a few years. Although Goyanka I did it in Delaware. Oh cool. Um, and volunteers were like sticking to the book. Yeah. My conflict with Goyanka's philosophy, like if I can call it philosophy, is that he was claiming that it's not a school, it's not a cult, it's not a cult, it's not a cult, it's mm. not a cult, it's not a cult. And it at some point sounds like a cult. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we're yeah. Like, Are you sure you're not a cult? <laughs> and then uh, the whole thing with um, chantings at the end, and then he would say like, sadhu, 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 yeah, with yeah. a hand up. 
And um, because I traveled to India twice prior to this, I was like, sadhu means holy man. Oh, yeah, that's true, doesn't it? Yeah. So why do we say sadhu as thank you? Thank you to holy man. Do you want to be a holy man, Gayanka? Do you have a problem with that? (laughs) I had this whole conversation with him, but because we took the silent vow, right? So you are not allowed to write. You are not allowed to express yourself. You are allowed to ask questions to so-called teachers there, but they would just tell you, let it go and nothing else. Mm -hmm. And uh, they would just stick to the book. And my other biggest conflict was uh, with Goyanka saying, changing it's everything is changing changing changing. (laughs) with his voice like (laughs) everything in this world is changing 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 why on earth his teaching is not changing and that was my biggest conflict interesting why it's preserved as a fish in a can put on the shelf for many years we just watch videos recorded in 1991 and it's not changing and with anapanasati and um, just any form of Buddhism, uh, which I experienced, I also was a little bit in another cult, not cult. <laughs> I was doing Dzogchen when I was uh, 20. Oh, cool. Their philosophy, the teachers, be it lamas or be it ajans, for example, for Theravada, they pass on teachings mm. and they trust other teachers to integrate, to adapt, yeah, to enrich, to basically adapt to the world which is changing. And with Goyenka, I felt that it's not adapting to the world which is changing rapidly. So, but it's just uh, my small snobbish critique. No, <laughs> it's a good. Say. I think it's a good uh, question to ask. Also, mm-hmm. I guess I was very enamored with it. When did you do it? Like in what period of time? So it was in 2016, I think. I was in Montreal saving money to go to Norway, um, teaching a lot of yoga, doing, uh, I was a, it was just before I started another yoga teacher training with a new teacher. So it was fall and I was just getting into meditation. I'd wanted to do it for a long time. And I think it was good for 10 days to only do it, just to feel like they said what it was like to do just that. And then I did it for eight months. I did the hour in the morning and the hour in the evening. And I did not drink any alcohol for eight months. I went to a wedding, two weddings in that time. And at the time that I usually meditated, I went out to the car, meditated for an hour and came back to the wedding. Oh my God. (laughs) Right, I was very, very intense on it. And at that time, too, I was writing for a, a meditation app um, where I was writing the script that a, a speaker would uh, read meditations to. And that was the most stressful job of my life. It was one of the most, other than this waitering job, it was one of the most stressful jobs of my life because uh, the guy who, I was, who was reading my stuff hated everything I wrote. I, I had to take a bus two hours in the morning and two hours in the evening. And I was meditating in the morning and meditating at the evening for an hour, right? So I had no life. And then I was doing yoga, right? And I was doing a yoga teacher training. It was like such a jam-packed life. I, I was like, I was, most of my life was on the bus. I used to talk to the security guard that was uh, in the building of the yoga studio I went to. And we always talked. He was a very weird dude who had done a lot of weird spiritual stuff. He wasn't even associated with the yoga thing. He had done like Scientology and other weird stuff and had like become parts of lots of real, like more culty than Gwenka cults, you know, and broken away from them. And we became friends. And there was this one night where we're talking and I can't be with him. I'm like, you know, where you kind of feel like I got to go. And in my mind, it's like, I got to go, man, because I got to go meditate. And it occurred to me that that was ridiculous. Like I was not living my life because I had to go meditate. I couldn't be present with this guy because I had to go meditate. And that was when I started to break away from this, uh, this, this over intense meditation yoga structure that I was doing. Yeah. So if you look back, would you say that Goyanka managed to brainwash you or not? Um, did he manage to brainwash me? <laughs> or like program you at least? <laughs> he might have. I definitely liked doing it. I definitely got an ego boost from doing it, which is very funny. 
right? Because I would tell people, like, oh, yeah, I've gone, like, uh, six months meditating, uh, two hours a day. People are like, wow, it's impressive. I'm like, yeah, I know, it's super impressive. <laughs> oh, I haven't drank for, like, this long, you know? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. like, tooting my own. Just like the past Joe that uh, wanted to tell people that he was going to teach underprivileged kids English, you know? It's, like, just an ego boost. But at the same time, that eight months developed something in me. I definitely learned something from that eight months and especially the loving kindness. I still use the loving kindness, you know, which is just uh, wishing people good wishes, you know, health, happiness, life of ease. And actually at the end of that, I had this very bad experience where I had gone on a trip with a friend at the end of like this intense eight months of like yoga, meditation. We went on a trip and we rented a yurt and we um, had a very bad experience. An experience that was so bad that it ended up breaking our friendship. And it was much my fault. It was mostly my fault what had happened. And I won't go into the details, but I went through this process when we came back to the city where I would flip between two scripts in my head. One script was, it's his fault. He should have done it, and I was blaming him. And the other script was, oh my God, I'm the worst person in the world. I'm so terrible. Also, I'm doing all this yoga, and I'm very aware of what's going on in my body and sensations because of this Vipassana meditation. And I'm walking down the street, and I realize that every time the script goes to, I'm amazing, he's the one who's at fault, my chest puffs up, and I walk down the street like this, like I'm right. And every time the script flipped the other way, oh, I'm awful, I would like bend my head and I would curve my, my back and I would like collapse within myself. And when I noticed this, I actually noticed one script flip to the other script and me go back and forth. And I'm like, well, what would my thoughts be like if I just walked straight, like comfortably up? And what happened was I felt awful but didn't collapse under the feeling of feeling awful. And the hardest thing was just to walk as myself with the guilt and the pain and feel it without collapsing under it. And that was total, that moment was totally because of the training I did with Vipassana and the training I did with yoga. Wow, that's the pure body-mind connection, I think. Yeah, it was, it was a beautiful moment. It was a beautiful moment. Thank you so much yeah. for sharing it. Yeah, I think it's uh, really great to have these realizations. My lessons after all these uh, crazy experiences are very simple. Mm. That life is simple. <laughs> so, and just seeing the simplicity and um, I think allowed me to feel happy that you realize that for feeling good, feeling happy, you don't have to do anything like <laughs> much yeah. I know, just yeah that's super cool yeah that you can just like be you know live your life do what do what you do you don't have to yeah yeah <laughs> slow, slow down, down. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. So we've been speaking for a while and <laughs> it feels that there is so much to unpack even more. If someone wanted to reach out to you and connect with you, how could they do that? I have a website. It's livingenso.com. Enso is spelled E-N-S-O. So livingenso.com. And you can contact me through that website and see some of the stuff I've written as cool. well. Cool, cool, cool. Anything on the surface? Yeah, sure. Just because it's slowing down theme of your podcast. I was on my way here mm -hmm. and I felt like the day, the whole week had gone by so fast and that days were going by faster and faster. And then I remembered that when I move slowly and I'm really aware of what I'm doing, whenever I can remember to be aware, that I have more time. Like I live more life. When I slow down and I, I breathe and I, I'm aware as I can be. So it's actually a fountain of youth in a certain way. Wow. It's beautiful. It's true. By slowing down, by walking slower, you kind of reward yourself with the space mm -hmm. and life, like creating the space for seeing the life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think so. 
Amazing. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> Thank you, Jenna. That was a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and find it valuable, please consider supporting the podcast. You can leave a review or sign up to my newsletter on the website janaslow.com, J-A-N-N-A-S-L-O-W.com. This podcast was recorded and mixed at AudioZ Studios in downtown Montreal, Canada. Visit AudioZ.com for more information. The music is composed by Remy Sili Aka Klatu. Find his tunes on soundcloud.com slash Klatu, Apple Music or Spotify. Thanks everyone and until the next time. Mm-hmm.